Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Well, welcome, welcome to Serve Sunday. And we are dead in the middle here in our series of Exodus. And so you might say, well, what on earth does Exodus and God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt have to do with serving? Well, I'm so glad you asked because we're going to open up this text this morning. And I believe that the Lord providentially, as he often does, arranges the text to line up with our particular point of emphasis. So if you'll go to Exodus chapter 5 in your Bibles, we're going to be reading through this long section. I'm going to kind of tell the story of the Exodus and this passage as we go through it. Everybody with me on that? Okay, so before we do that, before we dive into God's word this morning, will you just take a moment and pray and ask for God to meet with us once again? Lord, we do need you. And we just pause and we declare our dependence upon you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have empowered and enabled us to serve you. What an awesome thing that is. And I pray today as your word is opened, that Lord, you would hide me behind the cross of Jesus, that you would make yourself known and you would make yourself look great. Lord, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So often we think of Martin Luther as the confident outspoken, seemingly fearless leader of the Protestant Reformation. How many of you have heard of Martin Luther before? Okay. All right. And you have kind of the stories about Luther boldly standing before the Diet of Worms and saying, here I stand. My conscience has bound me. I can do no other. Doing these kind of bold things in the name of the Lord. And you would be accurate to think of Luther as a man of deep courage. But this was not always the case. After Luther became a priest, he had two years to prepare to lead his very first public service. This was a huge event. And as a result, dozens of people traveled from far and wide to hear Luther do this first service, including his father, who he hadn't seen for years. So all of these guests filed into the church. They gathered to see Luther perform the service. And in the middle of the service, he froze. Just absolutely froze. So much so that he couldn't continue. And the other priest that was standing there with him had to help Luther finish this monumental event. Luther was overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy at trying to somehow serve the Lord. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wanted to do something for God maybe and felt this overwhelming sense of inadequacy? Have you ever felt incompetent, incapable, or insufficient? Man, I certainly have. I remember uh, when I was in college uh, in the church that I grew up with in, uh, the pastor came to me and said, hey, Ryan, would you be willing to kind of emcee the Sunday evening service? And I said, Sure, yeah, no problem. I mean, I've been to like a hundred or a thousand church services at this particular church. I know how you do it. It is no problem. Well, one of the roles at that church that I grew up with was the, of the MC was to kind of bring the ushers forward, right? You know what I'm talking about? Bring them forward for the offering. And then usually you would kind of direct one of the ushers and said, 
would you pray for the offering for us in your very pastoral voice? So I did this just that. I, I, I remember, and I, I was standing here at the pulpit, all of my like 19 years old, and here comes these ushers, some of them who were older than the building that the church was in. And I looked over to my right and I said, Mr. Morris, would you mind praying for the offering for us this evening? And he looked at me and said, no. Just, just flat like, just no. Let, let me tell you something. I felt unprepared. <laughs> right at that moment, I, I was like, I was afraid to ask someone else. And so I was like, well, okay, I'll pray then. And so I prayed for the service. We made it through, but it was just a very, very awkward situation. If you can identify with this, if you've ever felt insufficient for a task, then take heart. You're in good company. In fact, in our passage today, this is exactly how Moses felt in the story. Oftentimes we think of Moses as the mighty deliverer of God's people. But really the story of Exodus is about God mightily delivering his people through an often reluctant, sometimes blundering Moses. In fact, the story of Exodus reminds us of this. The Lord is not looking for capable people. He is looking for people who believe him to be capable. Look, the Lord is not looking for the best and the brightest. The Lord is looking for people who will believe that he can do things through cracked, flawed vessels like you and I. As Second Chronicles says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. God is not looking for people who are super impressive. He is looking for people who he can make himself impressive through. I love John Piper's analogy on this particular point. He says it this way. God is not a scout looking for the first draft choices to help his team win. He is an unstoppable fullback, ready to run touchdowns for anyone who will give him the ball. God just wants you to give him the ball of your life. God doesn't want you to be the best. He just wants you to say, here I am, Lord, just do whatever you will with me. Flawed, frail, incompetent, inadequate, insufficient as I am. Take me, use me, do your work through me. So if you've ever felt any of those ways, I believe that God has a word for you today. And let's be honest, right? Come on, let's, let's just like take our nice church faces off here for a second. We all got a little Moses in us, don't we? I mean, really, really, don't we all feel a little inadequate? H have you ever looked in the mirror, you know, taken a good look at yourself? Maybe it's after you shaved if you're a guy. Or a girl, I guess, yeah. Maybe it's after you shave or you got your makeup on, you got your hair all done, and you look in the mirror and you think this. Hmm. I've seen better. You ever felt that way? You just feel a little bit inadequate. Jayla's over there like, no, man, I always look in the mirror and I'm like, man, that's you the man, right? Yeah, no. We all sometimes feel the sense of inadequacy, but here's the good news. You do not need to work for God. He wants to work through you. And those prepositions matter. You 
do not need to work for God. He wants to work through you. Which leads me to my point this morning. It's very simple. We must trust God to work through us. That's where we're going. We have to trust the Lord to do what only he can do through us and not somehow say, Lord, I'm going to do things for you. Lord, you do things through me. That's the emphasis, I think, of the story of Moses. So Lord willing, through this section of scripture, you'll be reminded that the Lord is the impressive God of very unimpressive people. And I'm just not that impressed with myself. I'm just not. And I would venture to say that's probably how you feel. If I'm going to do anything of significance, of eternal significance for the Lord, I need an impressive God to do something through unimpressive Ryan. So I want to give you from this text at least three reasons why you can trust this impressive God to do things through unimpressive you. You ready? Okay, three things. Number one is this. God works through us in spite of our failures. Amen? God works through us in spite of our failures. After the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush, which Rod talked to us last week about, he sent him along with his brother Aaron back to Egypt to begin the deliverance of Israel. Moses and Aaron then, and I'll put it in air quotes, confronted Pharaoh. Okay, confronted is like super loose. You'll understand why here in just a minute. And let's just say that meeting did not go so well. Here come Moses and Aaron, believing that God is going to do something. They come before Pharaoh, and they said, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides... I will not let them go. I mean, he's just like straight up like, what are you talking about? Can you folks get on out of here? I don't care what you say. I don't know this God that you're talking about. Be gone. And he kind of flicks them off like a fly, basically. And as if this was not enough, Pharaoh didn't like that they would even have the audacity to ask him this question. Verse number four. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Verse 6, that day Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply straw for the people for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks for them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. As you can imagine, this did not raise Moses and Aaron's approval rating among the Israelites. Their popularity was not very high at this point. In fact, here's what their countrymen said. Verse number 21. May the Lord take note of you and judge Moses and Aaron, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses' first attempt to rescue God's people is a complete, utter, and an abysmal what? Failure. But you might say, okay, all right, all right, right, right. Okay, he failed in talking to Pharaoh. 
But Moses was a man of deep faith, right? I mean, this guy, when you think about the heroes of the faith, you think of Moses. So I'm sure in the midst of this failure, Moses was trusting the Lord. Not so much. Look at verse 22. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, get your best whiny voice on right now. Why have you caused this trouble for your people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for my people. And you haven't rescued your people at all. So Moses not only fails to deliver God's people, but he fails to trust God. No doubt, as Moses reflected back on this period of his life later, he would have written failure in big, bold letters over the top. But we've been, all been there, right? Are there seasons in your life that even now, years later, you cringe to think about? Are there events in your past that haunt you? You know, you start to think about them and they, they might keep you up at night. Are there choices that you have made that are still a source of embarrassment in your life? And you're like, oh, that was 15 years ago, but good grief, why did I do that? We all have these, this sense of failure in our life. Maybe it's a failure in a relationship. Maybe it's a failure in business. Maybe it's a failure of character. Maybe it's a failure to endure, or maybe it's a failure to believe God's words. Is there not something or some things in all of our lives that tempt us to say, you know what? I'm a failure. I am a failure. But here's the thing. In spite of Moses' failures, God was far from done with him. In fact, in fact, it wasn't till after Moses went to Pharaoh and Moses doubted God that the Lord again spoke to him these words. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Look at what God says to this failure of a man. Now you see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them out from his land. It's as if God is saying, okay, Moses, you kind of thought you had this under control. And now you failed. And now you failed to trust me. Now you're ready. Now you're ready. Now you're in the position where you can hear from me and begin to see that it is my work. Sometimes, friends, we need to taste failure so that we realize the true source of success. Sometimes we need to taste the bitter fruit of failure so that we can begin to see where true success comes from. Then just to be sure Moses gets the point, God launches into a diatribe. As Rod pointed out last week, notice all the eyes. In fact, I would like you to say them with me as we go through this passage. You ready? So look up on the screen here. Say all the eyes out loud. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, am the Lord. Appeared to Moses, or appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but was not known to them by my name, the Lord. Also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land that they lived in is aliens. Furthermore, have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves and have remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, am the Lord and... Okay, come on, we've been doing this, folks. Is it different? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> we'll bring you out from forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. We'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. We'll take you as my people and we'll be your God. And you will know that and the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of Egypt will bring you to the land that swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and will give you it to it as a possession and the Lord. This God is bad. He's just, he's bad. In the good way, right? I mean, he's just saying, Moses, hey man, don't get it twisted. I am the one who will do the delivering here. And I'm going to say I like 20 times just so you pause and realize that it's not about you. It's about me. Listen to this statement very carefully. Your failures do not limit God's power. Amen? Your failures do not limit God's power. Was God like up in the heavens like wringing his hands because Moses messed up? No. He was saying, I am the Lord, Moses. I will do the delivering. You won't do it. I will do it. You trust in me. You don't need to work for me. You need to trust me to work through you. Sometimes we get the notion in our heads that God only works through people with a perfect track record. But brothers and sisters, this just isn't the story of Scripture. God used Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver or liar, to create the 12 tribes of Israel. God used Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, as he toppled the powerful city of Jericho. God used Peter, who denied Jesus three times as the pillar of the early church. And God used Paul, the persecutor of his people, to take the gospel to the ends of the known world. So yes, 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 you probably have skeletons in your closet, but that doesn't mean you're useless Acts 17, verse 25 says it this way. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Here's the good news. Though God does not need us, he chooses to work through us. God don't need us, folks. We are not like a necessary port of his puzzle. God is the omnipotent Lord of the universe. And sometimes we think, well, I'm a failure and therefore I can't do anything for God. God says, no, 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 no. It's never been dependent on you in the first place. I can work through you. Stop trying to work for me. Some of you look at your past and you have failure written all over your life. And it haunts you. You don't sleep. You're anxious. You're desperate. Maybe you're despairing. This failure just haunts you. But the story of Moses and the rest of the Bible reminds us that the Lord can transform the useless into the useful. 
Man, you may look at your life and see failure, failure, failure. But if God can work through Moses and his failures, he can work through you. All right, number two. Not only does the Lord work through us in spite of our failures, but God works through us in spite of our weakness. Immediately after God pronounces his intention to rescue his people. I mean, he goes into that big, powerful speech. Lord, I will drive them out with a strong hand. He gives that talk. And how does Moses respond? Chapter 6, verse number 12. But Moses said, in the Lord's presence. He, he puts that idea, in the Lord's presence, to show just kind of how ridiculous this is in one sense. If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I am such a poor speaker? You're kind of like, Moses, were you listening? Moses is essentially saying, God, I can't do this. I got a D in speech class. You got the wrong guy. I can't do this, Lord. And then to show that this was not just a passing fancy, Moses comes back to it. Look at verse 30. He says almost the same thing again. But Moses replied, in the Lord's presence once, once again, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses was relying on his ability to command the audience to set God's people free. And God is saying, no, 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 Moses, you're still confused on this point. Moses was fixated on his own inadequacy. And then, really weirdly in one sense, right in between Moses' first excuse of being a poor public speaker and his second excuse of being a poor public speaker, speaker, I also am in that category, apparently. Uh, poor public speaker. Say that five times fast. God drops in a genealogy. Huh? Like right in the middle of these excuses, God gives Moses' family tree. That's weird. Well, let me read it for you just so you see how weird it is in one sense. Verse number 14 of chapter 6. These are the heads of their father's family, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaw, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, according to their family records. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shemai, by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Isran, Hezron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahali, and and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Iztar, Korah, Nepheg, Zitri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Ez, oh boy, I was doing good, Elzaphan and Sithri. Also, Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amminadab and sister of Nashon. She bore Nabab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korhathites. Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clans. That's deep, right? Did you notice anything spectacular or interesting about that genealogy other than some serious longevity? Probably you're thinking, well, no. Just weird names. And that, I believe, is the point. 
There is nothing particularly spectacular in Moses' genes. Moses, just like you and I, was an ordinary, fallible human being descended from ordinary, fallible human beings. It seems the passage is drawing our attention to this in verse number 26. Look at verse number 26, right after the genealogy. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring your Israelites out of the land of Egypt. It was this plain old, average, non-spectacular, imperfect Moses and Aaron that God chose as the instruments of his redemption. Here's the idea, friends. God's extraordinariness shines most brightly through the ordinariness of his people. Moses was just an average guy from an average family. Nothing spectacular in his lineage. He was not from the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts. He was just from the tribe of Levi, and God said, I'm going to use you. Man, how many... Um, how many Indiana Jones fans do we have here? Indiana Jones? Okay. Wow. This is disappointing. We need to pray right now. So I love Indiana Jones. Um, and, and I love The Last Crusade. You know, the one with Sean Connery and Harrison Ford? Yeah, can I get a witness? Right. It's a great movie. And, and at the end of the movie, sorry, spoiler alert here, they're searching for the Holy Grail. And the villain of the movie and Indy get into this chamber where there's all these cups spread out. And, and the villain walks up and he grabs the fanciest, the, the most glorious veil, uh, or, um, grail in the entire room. And he holds it up and he says, surely this must be the cup of the king. So he fills it up and he takes the drink and in the classic, like, 90s CGI that was existed then, he, like, melts, right? And the Knight Templar, who is standing there, looks over at the villain, and he says the classic line, he has chosen poorly, right? And then Indy begins racking his brain. What are we going to do here? So he took this cup. It's not the right one. Which one can possibly be the right one? So he looks at all the cups and he finds the, the plainest, the simplest, just this little kind of wood chalice. And he holds it up and he says something to this effect. This would be the cup of a carpenter's son. It's simple. This would be the one. So he takes it and he dips it in and he takes a drink. And the knight looks at him and says, you have chosen wisely. Okay, just, I mean, just let that sink in your soul for a minute. That's so good, right? Well, the idea is simply this. The Lord isn't enamored with fancy cups. The Lord isn't impressed by your ornateness or your ability or your beauty or your spectacularness. He simply desires to make his power known through ordinary vessels. My question is just like this, like, are you ordinary enough for God to use you? God is not looking for the awesome, the powerful, the mighty. God is saying, are you just a normal person who wants my power to shine through you? Man, you didn't know Indiana Jones was such a theologian, did you? No, you didn't know that. Trust Indy, trust him. Except for the whole bit about the crystal skulls, just forget that ever happened, just Remove that from your memory, go back to the early ones, and then you'll be fine. 
The Lord even went so far to say to the Apostle Paul these powerful words. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So if you are weak, if you are ordinary, if you are inadequate, then you are exactly the type of person that God delights to use. Weakness does not disqualify you from ministry. It qualifies you for it. Man, if you don't have anything to offer, sign up. If you think you're impressive, you're probably in the wrong place. God wants to work through ordinary people, weak people, to make his glory manifest. Perhaps instead of calling this point number two, God works through us in spite of our weaknesses, perhaps I should have more accurately say God works through us because, because of our weaknesses. Oh, man, we got a lot of weak people here. I can tell you, man, we are weak. I'm just kind of kidding there, all right? They're like, this church is mean. No, like, but we know. We know that there is weakness in us, but that doesn't mean that God cannot use us. In fact, he delights to make himself known through our weakness. Number three, God works through us for his glory. Even after all of Moses' excuses, the Lord is undeterred. Verse, chapter 7, verse number 1. The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Then God goes even another step further and tells Moses why he's going to do it this way. Verse number five, the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh and I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So although God gave Moses and Aaron a role to play in the rescue of his people, he, re he reminded Moses that he is the real star of the show. Moses, you have a role. You have something to do. But, but man, you're just an extra. You know the real star of this production is it is me. And I am about to show how great I am through you. The final section of our passage give a foretaste of what is about to happen. Look at verse number 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. And they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff and it became a serpent. Now don't miss this last line. But Aaron's staff swallowed all their staffs. Pharaoh thought his sorcerers could replicate the works of God. But it wasn't quite the same, was it? Because in the end, there was only one staff. It was as if God was subtly saying... I will get my glory. No Pharaoh, no weakness, no failure is going to stop me because I will display my glory through you, Moses, through you, Aaron, 
and let the sorcerers and the occultists play, but they are not God. I will win in the end. God was on the verge of doing some of the most spectacular things in all of Scripture. And here's the kicker. He was going to do it through Moses and Aaron. I mean, God was about to part the Red Sea. God was about to send lice and turn the Nile to blood and frogs and, and, and boils and hail. God was about to bring darkness over a whole country. God was about to lead two million people out of slavery. And he was going to do it through failing, weak Moses and Aaron. This is astounding. This should blow your mind. The almighty creator of the universe chooses to display his glory through people like us. Here's the implication, brothers and sisters. If God can do incredible work through Moses, he can do incredible work through you. God, God does remarkable things through unremarkable people. And this fills me with hope. This fills me with gigantic hope. Here's why. As I look at the world today, there are some issues that require God-sized actions to change. Are there not? I think of the stain of racism that still divides our country. I think of the millions of unborn lives that are quenched before they even draw a breath. I think of the decline of the church, particularly in our urban communities. I think of the terrible suffering of the millions and millions of orphans and refugees worldwide. I think of the three billion people on our planet right now who have no access to Jesus or his word. These are God-sized problems and they require God-sized solution. But here's the thing. I believe that because of the people sitting in this room, some of the ordinary, average, regular people in this room, some of that darkness will be pushed back. Not because you're awesome. I mean, don't take that personally. But rather because that's how God likes to roll. God likes to do remarkable things through unremarkable people. Man, um, once a week, usually it's Thursday nights at my house, we make pizza. I, I make pizza. I am the pizza chef in the Mechanic Homestead. And over the years, I will say rather humbly that I have crafted my trade. Um, I have learned how to make what we like to call pizza perfection. Um, not to boast, but it's pretty close. So we make this pizza, and it's a process. It's a process. It, it takes us a little while, about an hour after the dough has risen and appropriately reached the consistency. And we have several different pizzas that we make. We make a barbecue chicken pizza that's a, that's a, that's a favorite. The, the, top, the top getter is what we call bruschetta pizza. It's, it's amazing. Like folks really like it. It's um, spinach and olive oil and garlic and some olives and um, some roasted tomatoes and so on and so forth. So if you ever want to co come over, no, because it takes too long to make it for a lot of people. So um, here's the idea though. When I'm, when I'm making the pizza, Sometimes, like, my four-year-old will come and say, Daddy, can I help you? 
and trying to be the good father that I am, I say, sure, hon. Come on over. You can help me. But here's the thing. She's not really helpful. Don't tell her, all right? She's not really terribly helpful. In fact, I, I usually find that like after she does something, like I have to kind of go back and do it again. But, but, then, but then the pizza comes out of the oven and, and she's like, we made pizza. We did it. Well, more accurately, it would really be something like, Daddy made pizza through me. And when this pizza perfection comes out of the oven, you inhale it, you take a bite of it. You know the sense that you get? Glory. Look, in a very, very small way, that story illustrates what God wants to do for you. He wants to enable you to bring about his glory. But it's not because you're amazing. It's not because you have a lot to offer. It's not because you've never failed. It's not because you're strong. God says, I delight. I love to show my glory through insufficient people. So if you don't have a lot to offer, sign up. Come on and get on board with what God is doing in the, in the world and do what is far beyond your own capacity. Gospel hope, as weak as you are, God can put his glory on display through you. God wants to make himself look like what he is great through our flawed lives. So look, as we wrap up this morning, in spite of his failures, in spite of his weaknesses, God accomplished amazing things through Moses, right? But as I've been saying all along, this is not just Moses' story. It's our story too. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. We, just like Moses, had significant failures in our past, right? And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. It doesn't get much worse than that. We... Like Moses, we're not particularly impressive. Ephesians 2, verse number 8. For you were saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. But that's not the end of the story. We, because of what Jesus has done, like Moses, can be used in terribly significant ways. Ephesians 2, verse number 10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. According to this passage, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ as your hope for salvation, then God has good works for you to do that he has prepared for you. In a very, very real sense, you have been saved to serve. God rescued you from your sins to serve. Now, I don't know exactly what those good works are that God has prepared for you, but I believe that God has called his people to step in, into some of those gigantic areas that I mentioned a moment ago. 
injustice, the unreached, the marginalized. But I also believe that God is calling his people to serve in ways that might be more mundane, but are equally significant. Here's how the apostle Peter puts it over in 1 Peter chapter 4. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God supplies. In order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, one of the ways that God is glorified in us is when we serve other believers in the church. By all means, we should serve out in the world. Don't, don't mishear me on that. We should be serving out there. But we should also serve each other. It's not an either or. It is a both and. Just think about some of the significant ways that you have been served today. You came into an organized environment because people got here early to set up this wonderful thing we call pipe and drape. They moved chairs around. They put out signs. When you entered the building, you were warmly greeted by our connections team. If you have children or teens, they have been discipled and cared for by a team of trained volunteers. We were led to sing praises to God by the worship team who comes early, stays late, and rehearses during the week to serve us. Throughout the service, you can hear what I am saying on the stage. You can get important information from the screen because our tech team is willing to work behind the scenes for the good of the congregation. When you give to Gospel Hope, you can be confident that the money is being leveraged for ministry because our stewardship team counts and records through a series of uncountable systems. Listen, and that's just some of what's going on. You have been served today in ways that maybe you knew and in ways that you maybe didn't know. And let me tell you something, that service is significant, is it not? God is using that service to display his glory through flawed people like us. Here's what Jesus thinks about all this. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves been called benefactors. It is not to be so like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. And in the eyes of the Lord, serving may not be glamorous, but it is greatness. Serving is not always the most glamorous thing in the world, but in God's eyes, it is great. So here's what we want to do today. It's going to be a little unusual, but I want to give you a very practical way to respond to what we've just heard. We want to invite you to serve today. In just a moment, in fact, ministry team leaders, you can be moving right now to the side. So all ministry team leaders, you can move right now to the side. So you see these wonderful folks here moving to the sides of the room, and they have some clipboards in their hand. Right up on the screen in just a moment, there's going to be their pictures and tell you what team they represent. So if you're not serving at Gospel Hope or or, are not, or would like to serve in greater ways, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to give you a few minutes here just to kind of get up and go around the room and talk to some of these folks. Put your name on a list and say, yeah, I, I'd like to know more about serving in that capacity. How, how can I get involved? Listen, folks. We want our church to be great, but not in the world's eyes. 
We want our church to be great because we are consistently just laying down our lives for one another, rolling up our sleeves, putting our hand to the grindstone, putting our backs to the work and saying, we want to serve. Here's, cause here's what we know. We know that we're weak. We know that we failed, but we also know that our God loves to do incredible things, remarkable things through ordinary, unremarkable people like you and I. Isn't that good news for us, brothers and sisters? So let's just take a minute. I'm going to pray, and then some music's going to come on, and you can just take a few minutes, check out some of these ministry teams. We would love for you to get plugged in to serving in some way. Can I pray for us right now? Lord, use us. Make us pursue true greatness. Help us to, like our Savior, take up the mantle of a servant. In Christ we pray. Amen.